before we read the text, before we get into things, let's start with a word of prayer, shall we? Father, we are complete in Christ. We rejoice in the salvation that we have in him. As we consider your word this morning, we ask you would speak to us. Show us the glory that comes from God. Show us the glory in Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Martin Luther is probably one of the most well-known individuals in the Protestant Reformation. He is, of course, the one who is, uh, we almost think of as the one who began the Protestant Reformation. He nailed his 95 theses to the church door there in his town of Wittenberg. But not only is Martin Luther well known for that moment, posting the 95 theses on the Wittenberg church door and beginning the, the Reformation, he's also he made a significant contribution to Christian thinking when he presented his theology of glory and theology of the cross. You know, we all like a theology of glory. We're drawn to the bright lights and the flashy toys. We love the signs and the miracles and the, the powerful reminders of the presence of God. We like the glory of God. We like to speculate about the brilliance of heaven and the wonder of the presence of God. We like to try and figure out who God really is behind the veil and over Mount Sinai. We prefer to exult in power, in glory, in strength, in wisdom, and in good. We want the theology of glory. We want the kingdom now. We want kingdom authority at our fingertips. We want kingdom healing in our veins. We want kingdom knowledge in our minds. We want glory. We want our glorification. And it's not just us. This has been the state of the world for a very long time. In fact, this was the desire of the Jews in Jesus' day. There have always been theologians of glory. But the problem is that Jesus teaches us a theology of the cross. Luther explained it this way. It does no good to recognize God in his glory and majesty unless you recognize him in the humility and shame of the cross. Follow me as I read our text this morning. John chapter 12, verses 12 through 26. John 12, 12 through 26. The next day... The large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that we are gaining nothing. The world has gone after him. 
Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Our text this morning falls into two parts. A theology of the glory and theology of the cross. Jesus, of course, calls us to be theologians of the cross, to become true servants of his. When we follow Jesus as his servants, there we will find the glory of the Father. Look with me first at a theology of glory. As we consider this theology of glory, we're looking at the response to Jesus by the people around him. The scene is a familiar one. We call it Palm Sunday. We'll be celebrating it in just about a month. Notice again, verse 12, the next day, a large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Remember, this is the same crowd that had been introduced to us back in chapter 11 and verse 55. We read this last week. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country, Galilee, to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. So here's this big crowd of Galileans. They're coming from the country and coming down to Jerusalem. This crowd has been in Galilee and has been witnessing Jesus' signs over the last two or three years. We read again about this crowd in 12, verse number 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had risen from the dead. So it was this raising of Lazarus, that climactic seventh sign, which really seems to have tipped the scales, drastically increasing the popularity of Jesus among the Jews, and also drastically increasing the animosity towards Jesus from the religious leaders. So here's this crowd has been watching all these signs. They're coming down to Jerusalem. They're purified. They're ready for the feast. And they are just giddy with excitement over the arrival of Jesus in Jerusalem. They follow Jesus into Jerusalem with palm branches. They yell out the words of Psalm 118. Psalm 118, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Save us, we pray, the psalm says. Hoshiana, Hosanna, as we say it. Save us, please, O Lord. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, 
This is actually something I haven't drawn our attention to yet here in the Gospel of John, but it's come up a few different times. So you see, there's, there's several different titles that are given to Jesus, actually to the promised Messiah in the, in the Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament. So you've got that title, the Son of David, right? Son of David is the, the promised one. You've also got the title, the Son of God. You've also got the title, Son of Man, You've also got that title, Messiah, the, the, the anointed one, all these different titles. But there's one title that Psalm 118 mentions for us here. That title is, uh, it comes up several times here in the Gospel of John. It's the coming one, Harakamanas, the coming one. This is one of the titles that we come across in Scripture. John chapter 1 and verse number 9 says, The true light which gives light to the world was coming into the world. This was the one coming into the world. John 6, 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. The prophet, the one coming into the world. This is that same title that he's using here. John eleven twenty seven, the confession of, of Martha. She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, the one who is coming into the world, Harakamanas, the one coming into the world. Luke actually records this title as well. In Luke chapter 7, in verse number 20, when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, Harakamanas? Are you this one, the one coming? Are you the coming one? Or should we look for someone else? So this is a title. This is a special title. Israel is waiting for. The one who is coming, Harakamanas. It's very significant that Israel is now yelling in the streets of Jerusalem, blessed is he who comes, blessed is the coming one, coming in the name of the Lord. In other words, Israel has found her king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel, verse 13 says. You sense the excitement here? Israel has experienced their king. He's here. He is the one where he's, he's raised the dead. He's fed the multitudes. He's here to bring glory back to Israel. He's here to conquer the Romans. He has arrived. Blessed is the king of Israel. And notice, they're waving palm branches. Now, palm branches were not like holding up the international peace sign or something. No, this would have been the equivalent of holding up a yellow flag with a snake on it that says, don't tread on me. This is a nationalist symbol representing Israel's hope that the Messiah is going to come and he is going to conquer. He is the liberator. He is the hero who has finally arrived. Hosanna, save us, O coming one. Israel expected her king to arrive and to defeat her foes. And she expected this for good reason. After all, Psalm 2 says this fairly clearly. This is the hope of Israel. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves against the, and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, his Messiah, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, this is God, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. 
I will tell of the decree, says the Messiah. Yahweh said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. The Messiah that Israel is waiting for is going to come and he is going to conquer the nations and rule over them with a rod of iron. It's going to happen. He is the Messiah who is going to establish a spiritual and political kingdom on earth. And Israel wants that king now. Israel wants that glory now. Israel was sure that since she was the people of God, then she would rule with the Messiah over the earth. Israel is waiting for this moment of glory. Israel has a fully formed theology of glory. And so with great glory and great honor, Israel welcomes the King of Israel into Jerusalem. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. But you know what? Jesus wasn't glorified on Palm Sunday. Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem is not the hour that he had been waiting for. The text says, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Jesus went and found not a general's war horse, nor the camel of a conquering king, but he found the colt of a donkey. He found a humble beast of labor. For any other moment, for any other king, this would have been a moment of glory. But Jesus is not glorified in this moment. Jesus is still on the road to glorification. Jesus is fulfilling a prophecy in this moment, but he's not fulfilling the prophecy of Psalm 2. Instead, he's fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 11 say this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. He shall rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. The king of Israel was prophesied to arrive humble and mounted on a donkey. The coming one comes not in the strength of armies, but in humility, riding on a donkey. He shall rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. But first, he must establish his covenant by his blood. The blood of the sacrifice, the blood of the covenant must come before the crown of glory. The cross comes before the throne. But no one understands this theology of glory. Verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that the th these things had been written about him and had been done to him. 
The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb, raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees say to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. In this final paragraph, Jesus or John tells us about three groups of people who are here at Palm Sunday, caught up in this theology of glory, not understanding the true meaning of this moment. First, you have the disciples. His disciples did not understand these things at first. Certainly they understand the Messiah has arrived in Jerusalem. It would appear for all the world that the king has arrived in his glory, and yet they do not understand this was not the moment of glory. Look at the text. When Jesus was glorified, they remembered these things had been written. When he had been glorified, then they remembered. In other words, true glory hasn't come yet. This isn't the moment of glory. This isn't the moment of glorification. Even though everyone is caught up in the appearance of glory, the true glorification of Jesus has not arrived. The disciples would one day understand. Hindsight's twenty twenty, as they say. But for now, the disciples are caught up in this theology of glory. Then there's the crowd, the second group of people. And there's actually two crowds here you have one crowd that had been with Jesus since he raised Lazarus from the dead. This crowd is the crowd that's just buzzing with excitement. They're bringing the king into the royal city with palm branches and, and crying out. They're continuing to bear witness, the text says. Who are they bearing witness to? They're building, bearing witness to this crowd in Jerusalem. The reason, verse 18, the reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they had heard. The crowd in Jerusalem had heard from the crowd outside of Jerusalem who's bearing witness. The two crowds, and they're both caught up in this theology of glory. They're both caught up in this jubilee. Crowds are swept away in a theology of glory. And finally, there's the Pharisees. Third group of people, they're gloomy just sure that all this glory is going to get them killed. They say, you see, you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. The NIV puts it this way. It says, see, this is getting us nowhere. The whole world is going after him. All of our efforts are in vain. Despite all of their threats, all of their plans, all of their conspiracies, despite the fact that they just know that all of this attention and all of this glory going to Jesus is going to get them all destroyed by Rome, their efforts have gotten them nowhere. The whole world has gone after them. Jesus was not glorified when he went into Jerusalem. He did not enter Jerusalem as a conquering king. The disciples don't understand. The crowds are giddy and the Jews are frustrated. Who believes? Who is living for the cross? Do you live for glory? Do you live for the greatness of the kingdom? Is your life being shaped by a pursuit of the, the big and the fabulous and the ostentatious? Are you dissatisfied with the ordinary means of grace? You know, praying, reading your Bible, going to church? Are you dissatisfied with spirituality in, in general, unless you see something fantastic from the Spirit. You see the Spirit moving. 
Unless you see signs and wonders or feel the Spirit in some way, is your spiritual life shaped by a theology of glory? It's been interesting over these past few weeks as we've gotten news about this revival going on down at Asbury College. And regardless of what you think about at the revival, there are many Christians who are making a pilgrimage of sorts down to Asbury to, I've heard it put, bask in the glory of the Spirit at the revival. And you know, that attitude is no different than the attitude of the Jews in Jesus' day. We are no different than the Jews of Jesus' day. We have a theology of glory baked into our souls. We're looking for glory in every nook and spiritual cranny. And yet Jesus wants to show you a better way. Notice a theology of the cross in verses 20 to 26. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. I wish I could just stop right there and preach a whole sermon on that. We wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. You know, the previous words of the Pharisees actually become very ironic. <laughs> Look, the whole world has gone after him. And then in the very next verse, the Greeks show up and they go after Jesus. These were Gentiles who were apparently worshiping the one true God, Yahweh, and they were going to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. They've heard about Jesus. And, and the arrival of these Gentiles in some way signals the, the arrival of the hour of Jesus' glorification. Je, uh, Jesus had promised Nicodemus way back in John chapter 3, just as Moses, was lifted up in, uh, Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Everyone is offered eternal life through the cross, whether Jew or Greek. And the arrival of the Gentiles, the fact that now Gentiles are arriving and coming and asking about this Jesus, this is a sign that in fact now the hour of the glory of Jesus, now that hour has arrived. Jesus says in response to this, in response to the, the Gentiles, the hour has now come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus was not glorified in the triumphal entry, but now the hour has come and he is about to be glorified. This moment has been building throughout the Gospel of John. Way back in chapter 2, he, Jesus said to his mother, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Chapter 7 and verse number 30, So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. The very next chapter, in chapter 8 and verse number 20, 
These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. This hour, which had not come during his ministry, it has now arrived. The hour that Jesus was waiting for since the beginning of his ministry, the hour for which he came into the world, now that hour has arrived. So what is this hour of the glorification of Jesus? Well, it's not just the hour of Jesus' death. The hour of Jesus' glorification is this whole complete event of the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. That's the hour of Jesus' glorification. And, and that's something of a paradox. You know what a paradox is? A paradox is two truths that, at first glance, they seem to be contradictory to one another. Upon further reflection, they actually work together somehow, but at first glance, they appear to contradict each other. And in these few verses, Jesus gives us three statements, three paradoxical statements. He first gives the paradox in parable. Then he gives the paradox in proverb. And then finally, he gives the paradox in practice. Notice, first of all, the paradox in parable. Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 24, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Have you ever thought about the paradox of a seed? It's rather interesting. If you leave a bag of seed corn in your shed through the winter, nothing will happen. You have to bury that seed in the ground in the springtime if you want that plant or that seed to grow into a plant. How odd is that? And this seed going into the ground is a parable of Jesus' own coming death and resurrection. It is through the death of Jesus that Jesus' life will bear fruit. But when does the death of Jesus bear fruit? Jesus is not going to remain in his in the tomb, is he? No, the death of Jesus bears fruit after his resurrection and ascension. It is when he is raised from the dead in a glorified body and the disciples see and believe that he is the Messiah and he ascends to the Father and sends the Spirit to the church so that the church can be established. It is then that Jesus is glorified. This is how Jesus is glorified through the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension. It's a paradox. Jesus is not glorified when he's paraded through the streets of Jerusalem by ecstatic crowds. He's glorified when he, is, when he has died and he is raised from the dead and ascended to the Father. God's glory was revealed through death. God's glory was revealed through a cross. First comes suffering, then comes glory. That's the foolishness of God that is wiser than men. Notice there's also a paradox in Proverb. Verse number 25, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now this is a proverb of life and it concisely states this theology of glory and theology of the cross. If you want Martin Luther's theology of glory and the cross in a nutshell, here it is. If you love your life, if you seek glory in this life, if you live life to the max right now, you're going to lose your life. 
The end of the theology of glory is death. But if you hate your life in this world, if you choose to abandon the goal of satisfying yourself, satisfying your own soul, if you choose to deny yourself, deny your, your, the, the worldly pleasures of this life, Jesus says you will keep your soul to eternal life. Again, what a paradox. All we can see is this world. You can't touch eternal life. You can't smell it. You can't see it. You have no way of knowing that this world is not all that there is. You must take Jesus at his word. You need to believe in God. You need God to reveal to you the reality of your soul, the reality of heaven and hell. You can't get to God and you can't get to glory on your own wisdom. You need God to tell you that there is a heaven and a hell. You need God to tell you that you have a soul and you must believe what he tells you, that what he tells you is true. And if you believe that what he says to you is true and if you value eternal life more than the pleasures of this life, you will find that you have truly guarded your soul and kept your soul. Your soul is more important than the fleeting desires of this life. But again, that's a paradox. It only makes sense if you believe in Jesus. It doesn't make sense if you're just looking at this world. But there's one more piece of Jesus' teaching here that's absolutely crucial to understand if we're going to get this complete picture of the theology of the cross. Consider the paradox in practice. Verse 26, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. You see, if Jesus just leaves his teaching at the, uh, the, the, this whole idea of the theology of glory and the theology of the cross, if Jesus just leaves it with the, the paradox in parable, you might think it's enough to just simply deny yourself, deny earthly pleasures. It's enough to just forsake your body. You might even be swept away with the Colossians in their heresy. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to all that perish as, though they're, as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. Paul says these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. My point is that if all we have is the paradox of parable, then you might think that Jesus is just calling you to an aesthetic life ascetic life. Go out, live in the desert, don't eat any sugar, don't touch a woman. Deny your bodily appetites and you will receive glory. But that's not what Jesus is teaching. That's not the point. The point is not mere self-denial. The point is obedience to Jesus. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Now, this is a big deal. This is a very significant change in Jesus' language. Up till now, Jesus has had many followers, many disciples. Crowds have been following him. But very few people have been serving him. Martha did. A few others did. But true followers of Jesus, true disciples, are those who are committed to Jesus in service. 
If you're going to keep your soul for eternal life, you're not going to run out into the desert and just commit to never eating sugar again. No, you're going to serve Jesus with the life that he has given you. Jesus sacrificially died for others. And you will follow him in sacrificing yourself for others. Why would you do that? What does it mean when Jesus says you will guard your life or you'll keep your life? What is the end, the purpose, the goal of a theology of the cross? Jesus says, where I am, there my servant will be also. How does that sound to you? You will be with Jesus. Jesus had told the religious leaders who didn't believe in him, I know where, I'm go- where I came from, where I'm going. You do not know where I'm going. Uh, you do not know where I come from or where I am going. And then he goes on to tell them, and you can't follow me there either. But you know, that's not what he says to you. What he says to you is, if you follow me, if you serve me, not only do you know where I'm going, but you will be with me, he says. You will have a part in his kingdom, which means, verse 26, the Father will honor him. You see, the end of a theology of the cross is glory. You don't get glory by seeking glory in this life. You don't get glory by satisfying your soul in the pleasures of this world. You don't get glory by trying to see the glory of God in your own wisdom, by your own intellect, or by your own merits. You get glory by suffering with Jesus. The Father will honor you when you follow Jesus in sacrificial self-denial and death. That's the point. The theology of a cross leads to glory only through the cross. So what do you want this morning? What thrills your soul? There's that old song, all that thrills my soul is Jesus. He is more than life to me. That's a theology of the cross. You can't get to God your own way. You can't pursue the knowledge and the glory of God through bright lights and flashy works. God is not drawing attention to his glory through signs and wonders and spectacular works. His spirit is not causing a ruckus. His spirit is not showing you signs of a kingdom that is already here. The kingdom of God is not here. The kingdom is not yet. It is coming. As Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey 2,000 years ago, all of Israel was caught up in a theology of glory. Here's our hero. Here's our Messiah. Save us, please. Hoshana. Hosanna. Jesus wasn't impressed. He says, whoever loves his life will lose it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So don't seek the glory of the kingdom in the world around you. Instead, follow Jesus. Serve Jesus. Imitate his life, his self-sacrifice. The way to the honor of the Father is through the cross. 
Jesus says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. That's Jesus' theology. That's the theology of the cross. Is that your theology this morning? Father, I thank you for this story.